I don't, you know, I often start when I stand up here, I begin and I say thank you to the worship team and, and kind of then just jump in. But I was thinking this morning uh, while Ethian was playing the cello over there that every now and then in our teams up on the stage, because we maybe don't have the cello, we use a pad, which is, I guess the easiest way to describe it is it's an electronically generated sound effect. Uh, much like a little hum that just happens in the background, and it helps the team, kind of fills in the gaps. And, and I thought to myself while Ethan was playing, I'm so glad that we have a human pad this morning playing the, the cello. So thank you to Ethan, and, and, and we don't want to single him out as well. I mean, thank you to the whole team. I'm always appreciative of the volunteers that we have who give up their time, who serve, uh, that practice during the week. You know, the, the leaders like Ferris and the others, they spend time picking the songs and just kind of praying through the whole formats. And it doesn't just happen. It, it takes effort and it takes time. So Ferris, thank you so much to you and to the whole team uh, that were up here this morning. We so appreciate that. Absolutely. And uh, I know it's in the weekly email, so I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. Uh, but next week, don't forget, we have a financial update meeting taking place after church. And I know that when I say finance update meeting, that kind of just sounds super boring. You know, most of us, we don't really want to see numbers up on the screen because nine times out of ten, we don't even know what half the numbers mean. And so we just kind of go along with it, and we trust the, the finance team. And, and maybe you sort of sitting going, well, I don't give money to the church anyway, so I don't really mind. Uh, and that's okay. That's totally fine. Uh, but I do want to encourage everyone to come and join us next week. It's not just going to be, here's the numbers, give more. That's not the focus. It's going to be, here are the numbers, here are some ministry things taking place, here are some exciting things taking place, this is what we're partnering together with. So I really want to encourage you to come and join us next week. Uh, you know, for example, one of the things that I'm going to point out is a wonderful problem that we currently have. Right now, as we all sit in the, the sanctuary, as we sit together, and while our children are all up in Sunday school, there are four open parking spaces in our parking lot. Now, human movements and, and growth research suggests that when you get to about 10% availability, that's your ceiling. It's not going to go past there. So we've got this amazing problem that we actually don't have enough parking, which, which I think is awesome, but I know some of you really get frustrated because you can't find the parking. And you're like, maybe if we came early and your, your kid or your spouse is like, I don't want to go early, then we just got to sit and make small talk. So I get it. Um, so I'm kind of putting that out there and leaving that with you. I know that the, the, um, the realtor's office on the corner, I'm probably pointing the wrong way. I know that. I, you all know that. I just point randomly. Uh, the, the realtor across the corner, uh, there are a whole bunch of parking spaces there that we are allowed to use on Sunday mornings. So if you don't mind walking the 100 meters, it would be wonderful for you to park there. If you cannot, please, that's totally fine. Please don't come and say, Brian, I would love to, but I have to park in the handicap zone. That's why we've got handicap base. You know, so wonderful problem to have, uh, and that's part of just the ministry update of what's taking place here. At the moment, we are preaching a series called Taste and See. Uh, now, you've heard me joke now and again. I've said something along the lines of, we're Baptists. When we meet, we eat. The reality is that's actually a human thing. When humans congregate, they eat. 
There is just something about gathering around a meal, isn't there? It's, it's just, it's, it's relaxed, it's welcoming, it's open. So we've decided that we're going to end our Taste and See series, which ends on the last Sunday of May, the 28th of May. We are ending the series with a great big potluck. Now, during COVID, we spoke about we want to do a great big potluck. We are now doing So on May the 28th, make sure you put it in your schedule and keep an eye on the weekly email because there will be instructions on, you know, going by last name, what to bring and all that sort of stuff. But make sure you join us on the 28th of May for a church-wide potluck to celebrate, taste and see that the Lord is good. And as I said last week, Taste and see comes straight out of Psalm 34. Uh, In Psalm 34, verse 8, the psalmist writes, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. It's that idea that when we read through Scripture, many times food is used as a metaphor. Food is used as an analogy. And it's a powerful one because we need food. Your God, for some reason, gives us hunger. We experience hunger. And God uses that physical hunger as a reminder to us that we're actually created for so much more. And we try to fill that hunger with all sorts of things, and, and that always leaves us wanting for more. And the reality is it's because we're created with this hole. We're created with this gap within us that only God can fill. And so God says, use that hunger, use that thirst as a reminder that you have a longing in your soul that only I can fill. Hence, taste and see that the Lord is good. We need food. And we can only go a certain number of days without food. Last year, my family and I, we kind of got stuck into that Alone TV series. I don't know how many of you have seen Alone. Uh, If you haven't seen Alone, the premise is pretty simple. It's one of these kind of pseudo-reality shows where they take a group of people and then they drop them each individually alone in the wilderness. You know, so it's out in the middle of nowhere in Alaska or or out in the middle of nowhere somewhere up northeast uh, Canada, and they've just got to survive. They've got to hunt for food. They've got to find fruit and veg. They've got to make shelter. They've got to do their their own thing. And and basically, whoever lasts the longest is the person that wins. And part of the show, part of the process is they monitor these contestants. And it's amazing because these contestants basically from day one start losing weight because they're not getting enough calories. They're not getting enough food in. Uh, And every activity, in fact, it's quite funny because during the show, they'll go like hunting or they'll go walking. And then it'll actually break down that, you know, an hour of walking for this individual based on their metabolism and weight, that's gonna burn up like 500 calories. And they catch a squirrel and that's 50 calories. And you're kind of like, that's a calorie deficit right there. And in the show, every now and then, they pull somebody out because they've lost too much weight. And, and there's a fear now that they're actually going to start having long-term problems with their organs because they're not getting enough food. We need food. Now, I'm pretty sure that, yes, there might be exceptions, but I'm pretty sure that in this congregation, a lack of food is not our major issue. I suspect we might have a problem on the other side. 
Now, I, I know nobody likes to talk about getting fat or obesity or anything like that. Um, thank you for those of you who've noticed that I've put on a little bit of weight during COVID. I appreciate that. Uh, but of course, the medical professionals will remind us that that's not healthy either. Just as an extreme deprivation can lead to health complications, so can an overeating. And it can lead to heart disease or to diabetes or, or all sorts of complications. And so there's this fear or this, this challenge and trouble that if we have too much, well, that's also bad for us. And maybe that's why Scripture even though it uses food as an analogy, even though it uses this idea of hunger and thirsting, even, food remind, even Scripture reminds us that we can get to a place of comfort. And in that place of comfort, this is a bad place to be. Because in that place of comfort, we might start to forget about God. We might forget the goodness of God. We might think we don't need God because everything is going well. Like I remember doing a, a small bit of ministry work in a really impoverished area in Africa when I was a student, uh, and our youth pastor was chatting with one of the local pastors, and, and he kind of made this comment where he said, I just find it amazing that there are Christians in this community because there's so much poverty and there's so much hunger and and there's so many challenges, I, I just don't understand why people turn to the Lord. And the local pastor kind of said, well, because God's all we've got. In fact, God's all we've got, and, and it's easier for you guys to forget about God because you don't need God, because you're comfortable, you're well-fed, you've got what you think you need. So today, as we journey on with this taste and see the, the kind of question I'm sort of trying to answer is, how do I prevent forgetting the goodness of God? How do I live in such a way that puts, God's, uh, puts me in the place of God's blessing? And if Scripture issues warnings about uh, forgetting God and, and speaks of rewards for those who follow after, how do I do that? And I think Scripture quite clearly simply states the best way to do that, the answer to that, is to live a Christ-centered life. To live a Christ-centered life, to seek to imitate Christ in my daily walk. In fact, it, it's quite simple. It matters how I live my life in the here and now. It matters how I live. Salvation is not just making a propositional statement, affirming a truth statement. That's not what salvation is. Sometimes we, we think that salvation is the end point. You know, if we get somebody to accept Jesus Christ, boom, job's done. No, that's only the starting point. If I affirm Christ as Lord, how do I then live you know, some of the early Christians, they got the title Christian as a derogatory statement. Now, people were trying to mock them, and they were basically calling them little Christs. You know, you, you lot who follow this Jesus dude, you lot who, who worship, you're, you're little Christs. And it was supposed to be a term of mocking. They didn't believe something, those early Christians, their belief led them to a radical lifestyle. And society around them didn't understand that, and, and so they mocked them. And I think for us, it's to learn and to say, I can't sit back thinking, well, I've got all I need. I'm okay. No. 
It comes to how do I live my life in the here and now. Jesus warns us in the Sermon of the Mount. He, he says, don't store up treasures here on earth where rust and moth destroy. Store up treasures in heaven. And the, the Apostle Paul testifies that all he had gained in this life, he counts as loss except for knowing Jesus Christ. For him, the real value in life was to know Christ. You know, we're going to have some baptisms afterwards, and I was joking with Zlata that she better not die while I'm holding her under the water because that would look awkward when I try and explain that to the police. You know, she passed away while I was holding her under the water. I think that's a lock tight. You know, I've got no alibi right there. But Zlata said, well, to die is gain. So Zlata, I can't promise I'll let you up today. But that's what the Apostle Paul says. To live for him was to know Christ because he said anything else is pointless. In fact, death is, is, is awesome, as crazy as that might sound. The Apostle Peter talks about obedience and, and, and the importance of obedience as we follow after God because that's how we receive this incorruptible inheritance. So salvation is not the end point. It's only the beginning point. The beginning point of living a Christ-centered life. You know, in, in the world we live today, that is so counter-cultural, isn't it? You only have to spend a couple of minutes on Instagram or TikTok to see people saying, hey, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Look at what I'm wearing. Look at, look at how awesome I am. And it's so countercultural. Now, I'm not knocking Instagram. I'm on Instagram. I post pictures of my food as well. Uh, I'm not on TikTok. I, I do have some lines. But I understand. But, but the point is, we live in this world where, where everyone's saying, look at me. It's all about me. It's, it's what I want. It's what, who I am. It's what I do. And scriptures invite us into something so much bigger. And the bigger is living a Christ-centered life putting Jesus center stage of our lives. So this morning, as I talk about what is it to live a Christ-centered life, I have a couple of thoughts for you if you're taking notes. What does it look like to live a Christ-centered life? Uh, the first thing is that a Christ-centered life sees Jesus as the source of everything in their life. A Christ-centered life sees Jesus as the source of everything in their life. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ. And notice the Scripture doesn't say, My God will supply some of your needs. Nor does the Scripture say, My God will supply your wants. And I think that's why we struggle with this verse, because there's so much we want, and God goes, you really don't need that. In fact, if you had that, it would distract you and pull you away from me. So I will provide what you need. Or, or sometimes we go through an experience, and, and we think God's abandoned us because we're going through an experience that we don't like, We'd, we just don't want to be there, it's terrible, it's painful, it's difficult. And the scripture affirms that God is with us there. God is doing something infinitely beyond what we could imagine. God is growing us in ways that in that season and in that time we might not like, we might not know, but he's doing something for ultimate good and for his glory. 
God will supply our needs. Therefore, Jesus is the source of everything that we need. I know, I know some of you are going to sort of pedantically go, well, God didn't increase my salary. Or God didn't give me the house I wanted or the, the thing I wanted. Or, or God didn't prevent a family member from getting sick. God didn't prevent a loved one from passing away. I don't have answers for every single situation. But I know that God is still good. And I know that God is doing something in us even through those experiences. And so I have to trust that God will give me just what I need. And that's what a Christ-centered life does. A Christ-centered life sees Jesus Christ as the source of all things. And of course, this is our challenge, isn't it? Because over time, we start to get comfortable. Or over time, we start to think, well, if it's to be, it's up to me. And so I'll do what I need to do to get the job done. And we start to forget about God. We produce and we start to say, look how amazing I am because I've produced this. And we forget that it is Jesus who provides. Meanwhile, we push God from the center of our life. You know, God gave the Israelites a warning about this. And it's found in Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you've got your Bibles, you can follow with me in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 20 verses. Uh, It'll be up on the screen behind me as well. But if you have your Bibles on your phone or paper, you can go ahead and turn there. Just the context, this is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel before they enter the promised land. Uh, And of course, he is speaking on behalf of God to the nation of Israel. And this is what he says. Be careful to follow every... I'm reading from verse 1. I see that's verse 8, just in case. Is that not verse 8? Oh, it is. Sorry, it's chapter 8. That's what that big old 8 is. My humblest apologies. That was an ADD moment. Let's restart. Deuteronomy chapter 8... Verse 1, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you." Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to Him and revering Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with brooks, streams, and deep springs gushing out into the valleys and hills, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil, and honey, a land where bread will not be scarce and you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. 
Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I am giving you today. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then in your heart you will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord, your God. For it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms His covenant which He swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Do not forget the Lord your God. A Christ-centered life sees Christ as the source of everything. A Christ-centered life sees our Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit as the source. But the second thing, a Christ-centered life focuses on the person of Christ, not the rules of our faith. A Christ-centered life focuses on the person of Christ, not the rules of our faith. Now, I know that statement has the potential to get me into trouble. And I'm going to unpack that in a moment. But the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So I want to be careful how I say this. Because I want you to hear what I'm saying, not what I am not saying. When I say that a Christ-centered life focuses on the person of Jesus Christ and not the rules of our faith, I know that some of us might immediately jump to that second half of the statement and say, but Brian, the rules are important. Now, at no point did I say the rules are not important. Of course not. We've, we've just read that in Deuteronomy. God says in verse 1, be careful to follow every command. Verse 6, observe the commands of the Lord your God. Verse 11, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands. So yes, the rules of our faith, the, the instructions of God, the, the injunction of Scripture, the exhortations, those commands, those decrees, they're important. But they are not the starting point. Nor are they even the finishing point. The start and the end point is the person of Jesus Christ. And a Christ-centered life focuses on the person of Jesus Christ, getting to know Him and slowly becoming more like Him. That's the importance, a relationship with Christ. You know, every Christmas, uh, we, we hear that statement, keep 
Christ in Christmas. Now, I, I don't have a problem with that. I know that Christmas uh, often gets over-commercialized and, and people you know, say happy holidays instead of happy Christmas, all those kind of things. I know that. But perhaps we should have a bumper sticker or a card that we give to each other in church that says something along the lines of, Christian, keep Christ in you. Christian, keep Christ in you. Meaning that a Christ-centered life focuses on the person of Jesus Christ. Seeking to spend time with Jesus. Seeking to become like Jesus. You know, if we, if we lived as Jesus lived, if we became in character as Jesus was in character, if we allowed the Holy Spirit to truly mold us and change us and adapt us to become like Christ, the rules probably will fall apart, fall away, sorry, because we'll be doing them. We won't be focusing on them as the goal. It won't just become a, a religious thing. Focus on the person of Christ. Sadly, it still happens today. There are still churches so focused on the rules that they forget the person. And they drive seekers away. They drive those who are genuinely trying to find who is this Jesus. And they come into the church maybe wearing the wrong clothes, saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things. And they get driven away because they're, they're not doing the right thing. I watched an incredible baptism video the other day. I can't play it and I can't quote it because there was a swear word in it. But the pastor in the water asked the guy, why are you getting baptized? And the, and the dude sort of responded and said, well, basically I know I'm a piece of beep and Jesus saved me. And, and I just thought, oh man, that is amazing. Not the swearing. And I'm glad I'm not that pastor because I know he's gotten a whole bunch of emails about that. But that's Jesus at work. He takes rough people because he takes people. And he changes them and he slowly works on their life and their character. And we all journey at different speeds and God's at work in us in different places. And so if we start trying to focus on, well, you better wear this, look like this, say this, do this, we've missed the point. A Christ-centered life focuses on the person of Jesus Christ and lets him do the work. Thirdly, if I want to live a Christ-centered life, a Christ-centered life wants Christ to get the glory. You know, as I said a moment ago, we live in a time of incredible self-promotion. It's all about me. It's all about, look at me, look what I've done. Look how great I am. Acknowledge me. Pay attention to what I've done. We live in this world of, of self-promotion, whereas we're called by Scripture, we're called by God to say it's all about Jesus. We point to Him. You know, in, in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11, we read, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, in Romans 11 verse 36, he says, For from him, that is from Jesus, for from him... And through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. 
This was the rally cry of the reformers. When the reformers realized that the church had gone wayward and and weren't worshiping and weren't focusing on Christ, one of their main rallying cries was, Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be all glory, or to God alone be the only glory. Their point was, we don't deserve any glory. We're not worthy of any glory. The only person who receives glory is Jesus Christ. And a Christ-centered life has one goal, that Jesus gets the credit. I know, because I cringe as well sometimes, when a sports star gets up after they, you know, their team has won, and, and they kind of ask the player, how did you do it? And they, they thank God. You know, God gave me this victory. And I'm always, the cynic in me is always like, well, did he make the other team lose? You know, but when I think about it, it doesn't matter if that sports star's life doesn't always match up. God's at work in a person, but that's the goal. It's to go, hey, what I did today, God, thank God. God gave me that ability. God did this in my life. God's given me the opportunity. You know, can, can you imagine if we started to do that just in our everyday lives? Like you, you provide a meal that your family celebrates and enjoys, and, and instead of going, thanks, I worked really hard on that, you go, hey, God gave me this ability. Praise Him. Or if you're at work and you turn in some, some work and your boss says, hey, this is a great piece of work, and you start there and you go, well, first, I just want to give God all the glory and thank Him for the ability. But that's what a Christ-centered life does. A Christ-centered life looks for opportunity to make sure God gets the glory. And actually, it works even when we're in the pit. Even when we're in that place we don't want to be. Even when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. And people come alongside us. And and I'm not saying you have to suddenly say, hey, everything's amazing. No, not at all. But even in that place, we can say, I cling to Jesus. I trust him with what's happening. I, I, I pray and I hope and I know that he will turn this around and do something incredible. To God be the glory. To God be the only glory. In a Christ-centered life, Jesus gets the glory. And then finally, because we live in a fallen world where things seldom go the way we want them to, finally, and and the fourth thought I have, a Christ-centered life handles the troubles of this world with hope. Have you ever noticed that? Have you noticed how often life just seems to go wrong? Things just seem to fall apart. Pain happens, hurt happens, heartache happens, illness happens, death happens, disease, debt, divorce, you know, all those Ds. A Christ-centered life handles the troubles of this world with hope. This is what Peter writes to us. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter writes, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That English word that we've got there, answer, the, the Greek word translates more into the word that we get apologetics from. And apologetics is simply the the act of giving a reasoned defense, a reasoned, thought-out answer of an event. 
And so really what I think Peter is saying, and a better translation might be to say, always be prepared to give a reasoned defense for the hope that you have. Because my brothers and sisters, we're never going to be able to answer every single question. I can assure you, no one can ever answer every single question. But every single person can say, my hope is in Jesus Christ. I trust Him. He is at work. There will be troubles, there will be pains, but this life is not the end. We can face them with the hope, knowing that they will pass or that God will do something incredible. In fact, the the Apostle Peter, when he wrote that uh, passage just before that, he speaks about a living hope. You know, when he says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have, the previous chapter he speaks of that hope as a living hope because it is living in Jesus Christ. And so my hope is in Him, not in the experience, not in what is going on. And because God is in control and because God is weaving a masterpiece that will result in Him getting glory and Him being praised, I can cling to Him. As I close off this morning, I think a lot of things compete for center stage in our life. Might be things, might be people, uh, might be stuff we're chasing, experiences, or, or whatever the case might be. A lot of things compete for that center stage in our life. Don't let Jesus Christ be removed from center stage. There is nothing else that has business being there in his place. Christ needs to be first and foremost. A Christ-centered life focuses on Jesus Christ and points to Jesus Christ and follows Jesus Christ and seeks to become like Jesus Christ. If we taste and see that God is good, as we journey in that, we have one of two options. One is to get comfortable and forget. The other is to acknowledge and realize we've been given. And we turn in worship. Let us live Christ-centered lives. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you took on flesh and came to earth ultimately to reconcile us with our Heavenly Father. To pay the price that we could not pay. To atone for our sin. To cover that separation that we would never be able to get back to you. Jesus, thank you that you came and paved that way. But Jesus, I thank you for the reminder from Scripture that you also showed us how to live. How to live lives that put us in the place of experiencing your presence and and experiencing your goodness and your blessing. And Jesus, as we read through your Scripture, we realize that the true place is living Christ-centered lives, lives that focus on Christ, lives that seek to become like Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray right now you would stir in our hearts and you would help us to journey those steps closer to you. Lord, for those of us who perhaps have set something else or someone else up on the throne in our lives, that center stage that we're worshiping, Jesus, I pray that you would help us to Repent of that, to turn from that, and to once again worship you alone. And as we do that, that God, you would get all the glory. 
because we would see you and know you. For we pray this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.